History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 329th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Hey, Kelly, we are going to the Pacific Northwest on this one. Nice. This is a location suggested by our listener, Michelle Vaughn. It's the Pittock Mansion Museum. Awesome. And and this is something she suggested back in 2016. So this is just to let you all know, (laughs) if you've suggested something and haven't heard it yet, patience. Patience is a virtue. Yes, especially (laughs) around here. I don't have on my location suggestion list, like what dates these were suggested. And then I go back sometimes and look at the email to see if they've put some experiences they had in there or whatever or extra information. And then that's when I see the date on it. And it's like, oh, wow, that was a while (laughs) ago. (laughs) Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Frida. I hope that's the way you say it. She's from Norway. Deanna, Cindy, Diana. Both of those have two ends. Casey, Jess, Joanna, Vanessa, Nancy, Cody, Chelsea, Brian, K with an A-E, Chris with a C-H, and Spencer. Welcome to the crew, guys. And now, this moment, Naughty. Our moment in oddity was suggested by Crystal Vines. William Coyne Harvey was a very wealthy man and, well, a bit of an eccentric. In 1900, he left his life in politics to begin construction on a health resort on land he purchased in Rogers, Arkansas. He dubbed the spot Montanay, meaning mountain water. Before long, he had built three hotels, a tennis court, and indoor swimming pool. Two of those hotels, Missouri Row and Oklahoma Row, were the largest log buildings in the world. He built a secondary railroad line to bring people into the resort. Rogers was apparently not a place most thought of as a place to visit a health resort, and the project slipped further into debt. When Harvey went all in on his eccentric thinking and declared that he believed that humanity had reached its pinnacle, yes, in the early 1900s, and that civilization was going to collapse. He wanted to save all of this knowledge in a time capsule to show future humans what society was like at its peak. He devised a giant obelisk to put all this information inside of and called it the Pyramid. He started an amphitheater at the same time, and then the stock market crashed. These projects going on in unison and a huge loss of money caused Harvey to abandon Montanay. Later, the White River was dammed to form Beaver Lake and Montanay was in the path. This means most of what was left of it is now on the bottom of the lake. That includes foundations and the tower of one of the hotels. And when lake levels are low, it is easier to see the ruins and the amphitheater usually emerges. The fact that Beaver Lake holds the ruins of a health resort and an amphitheater that emerges certainly is odd. Pull the covers up tight. 
That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of February, on the 3rd in 1931, the Napier earthquake hits Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. New Zealand lies along the boundary between the Indo-Australian plate and Pacific plates, and those plates sliding against each other at 10.47 a.m. on that day in February reached a catastrophic 7.8 magnitude. The initial earthquake only lasted two and a half minutes, but leveled nearly all the buildings in Napier and Hastings. Thousands of people were injured, with over 400 hospitalized, and 256 people were killed. The earthquake even caused the local landscape to change, even shifting up the coastline. There were many aftershocks in the following weeks, with 597 being counted by the end of February. In the wake of the Napier earthquake, inadequate building codes were changed, no really tall buildings were built in Hawke's Bay again, and most everything was rebuilt in the Art Deco style of the time. That means Hawke's Bay architecture is one of the finest examples of Art Deco in the world. Portland would start as a pioneer town in the state of Oregon and grow into an industrialized modern city. One of the early families to make a mark on the city were the Pittocks. They were one of the wealthiest families in Portland society, and they would use some of that wealth to build their retirement in the form of a chateau up on a hill overlooking the city. Today, it is a museum and reputedly haunted. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Pittock Mansion. The West Hills of Portland are also known as the Tualatin Mountains, and they separate the Tualatin Basin from the Portland Basin. They were named after the Atfalati or Tualatin Kalapua tribe, and I'm sure I butchered that. <laughs> Glad it was your sentence. <laughs> the highest part of the range is Dixie Mountain, and it rises to 1,609 feet. So, for a former resident of the Mile High City who hiked 14ers in Colorado, that's, well, not exactly a mountain, Kelly. Well then, la-ti-da. <laughs> One of the other peaks here is Pittock Hill, and this is where the Pittock Mansion is located. Through this gap in the mountain range, supplies were brought via wagon to the ships in the port. I found something odd when I was doing the research on these mountains. In a 2018 article, Yvonne Addington wrote, the entire range doesn't appear on any recent maps that I can find. They were partially shown on USGS maps over 50 years ago, but not currently. The loss of identification of the entire Tualatin Mountain Range on state and federal maps is not a new problem. I made calls last year to the USGS staff, which confirmed their existence and said they could be put back on maps at their discretion, but to date that hasn't happened. That is so weird. It is very strange. This mountain range has disappeared from Oregon maps and weather reports. So I guess this could be because there are more hills rather than mountains, and that's why they're not giving them that distinction. Maybe. Should have been a moment in oddity. 
And maybe why <laughs> now they're not really the Tualatin Mountains. They're more called the West Hills. I guess. But I just find it funny that they had some maps where they had them on there as mountains. And then on other maps, they didn't. And what made them decide, okay, well, now they qualify. Now they don't. Who makes those judgments? <laughs> I have no clue. Somebody at the USGS, clearly. When Henry Pittock arrives in Portland, it was little more than a muddy little town just getting started. Have you ever been to Portland? I have. It definitely I... wasn't a muddy little town when you went, I'm assuming. <laughs> no, it definitely was not, although I don't remember a ton about it. We stayed briefly on travels up to Washington. So. Oh, okay. I've never been there. I liked everything rolling into the cities on our, our journey because it was a lot of greenery, a lot of wildlife. That's primarily what I remember. I was just a kid. And that was a long time ago. Not as long ago as if it would have been you. <laughs> Touche. But um, Henry Pittock was born in 1836 in London, England. His family relocated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that is where he grew up. His family owned a publishing company, and he learned the ropes of the business starting as a young man. He set off west without a dime in his pocket and set his sights on Portland. He got there in 1853 and was only 17 years old. His experience in printing got him a job with Thomas J. Dreyer of Portland's Weekly Oregonian. Of course, he didn't start out at the top. Let's just say this was more like our modern-day mailroom. He was mailing and delivering papers and working as a printer. And his pay was room and board. And when we say room, that's being generous. Yeah. I mean, when you hear what he got for room, I, I can only imagine what the board was. <laughs> this was a space below the front counter. <laughs> Can you imagine walking into a place and they're like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and hire you to help out with the things around the office here and with printing the paper and everything. And the kid goes, well, your ad said for room and board, where's the room? He's probably thinking at least someplace down the road or something. Right. Or maybe upstairs or at least a closet. Room. <laughs> I can't imagine. So the guy who heads everything up, throws a blanket underneath the counter and goes, there you go. Nice. At least he had some blankets. His hard work paid off and he made his way to shop foreman. Apparently, the paper was not doing real well financially, though. It couldn't afford to pay Pittock for his position, so he was made partner in the newspaper from 1854 to 1856. Thomas Dreyer was heavily in debt with the paper, so he was probably relieved when President Lincoln appointed him to a position in his administration. By April of 1860, he had mortgaged the paper to Pittock and then transferred it completely to him in November. This is why Pittock is erroneously said to be the founder of the Oregonian. He didn't found it, but he owned it early and would build it into what it would become. That year, 1860, would be a great one for Pittock. Not only would he now own the newspaper, but he married Georgiana Burton, who was 12 years his junior. Georgiana was the daughter of the man who owned the flour mill in town. She was part of a pioneer family that had traveled from Missouri to Oregon in 1854. And interesting story from that trip is that Georgiana became lost and a Native American tribe found her and returned her to her family, but offered to buy her before they left. Not sure how true this legend is or story is, but we wonder if the tribe figured the family didn't want her since she'd become separated. I don't know exactly. I read this story and I'm like, I wouldn't normally think that Native Americans would offer to pay to keep a little white girl for their themselves? I wouldn't think so either. So we need more information. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if there was a problem in the translation or if they just went, look, you left the kid by the side of the road. You clearly don't want her. We'll take her. And I'm thinking the real problem was they must have stopped somewhere and Georgiana just kind of wandered off, maybe to smell the roses. 
because she was really into that. She would found the Portland Rose Society that would eventually become the Portland Rose Festival. She was active in charities, and her forming of a sewing society would eventually become the Women's Relief Society. And like so many active, prominent women over time, she was a suffragette. Pittock had paid $300 for a plot of land in 1856, and this is where the couple would build their first home and have their children. They would build several homes on what would be known as the Pittock Block. And as we talked about in our last episode, I'm assuming the block is like a city square block, essentially. Isn't it interesting how this stuff always crops up? I've never heard anything referred to as a block until Victor. And now right, here we go. Have I. Another one. Their final home before the mansion was built, they lived in for 50 years. As the new head of the paper, Pittock decided that he wanted to take it in a different direction. He wanted to keep the politics out of the paper and keep the focus on actual news reporting. Shocking. Wouldn't it be nice if papers did that today? <laughs> Absolutely, as well as news reports. <laughs> I could have sworn they're called newspapers, right? not opinion papers. Exactly. He wanted this reporting to be timely, and he switched the morning Oregonian to a six-day-a-week delivery. The way the paper was described was a paper that favored the Union, was unflinchingly Republican, and that it would never purposefully injure an opponent's feelings. Pittock had competition from two other papers, The Advertiser and The Times. Pittock worked hard to get advertisers and subscribers. The Civil War had broken out, and he knew that he needed to get the latest news first. Pittock came up with an amazing plan that would be costly, but very effective. The other two papers got their updates on the war via steamer, so Pittock looked to the Pony Express and stagecoaches for his updates. They would carry wire dispatches from the closest telegraph line. Pittock had such a good relationship with the telegraph operator that he got the scoop when President Lincoln was assassinated. The operator held back the information until the Oregonian published. Henry Pittock was driven, and he would spare no expense to conquer the newspaper world in the Northwest. He pushed to get accounts current that the previous owner had allowed to become delinquent, and he got subscribers to grow and grow, so that by 1880, 11,000 people were subscribers to the Oregonian, some of whom were far outside of Portland. So you'd think, why would they care about what the Oregonians reporting? But clearly, he was doing such a great job with the paper that mm -hmm. they did care. And if you think he's getting the scoop on these major news stories, like the assassination. Oh, of course. That's huge. That's where you want to be. By the 1890s, the Oregonian was the most widely read paper in Oregon. Pittock conquered other things as well. He was an avid adventurer and an outdoorsman and was credited with being the first man to summit Mount Hood. He helped to found the Mazamaz Climbing Club, but there was also trouble. The editor for the Oregonian was Harvey W. Scott. Pittock had made promises to him about giving him interest in the paper, but Pittock actually gave it to another man because he needed an infusion of cash. This, of course, felt like a big betrayal to Scott. He would buy his own shares in the paper eventually, but the bitter feud between the men would continue between their two families for generations. Many times, Pittock had to mortgage his home to fund expenses for the paper. He eventually had to sell majority control of his publishing company, Oregonian Publishing Company, to a group of other men. He and Georgiana had nine children, but only six made it into adulthood. The Depression of 1893 nearly bankrupted him. After mortgaging his home for a seventh time, he had to ask Thomas Corbett for a loan in order to hold on to his control of the paper. That was something he held on to with a vice grip, the paper. He wouldn't even give up control at his death. Now, this is a guy who has got himself invested in so many different ways. He's got these money issues going on with the paper, but he was a really wealthy man. So I don't know if it's because he had all of his money 
in all these investments, so it wasn't liquid, so he couldn't use that money to back up the newspaper? Possibly. Or what the case was, because he did buy a lot of real estate in his lifetime. He invested in lumber mills, paper mills, railroads, a bank, and even a sheep ranch. Wow. But he needed to take out loans from other people in order to keep the paper in his control. So the paper had enough money in it, but he wanted to make sure that he had the controlling interest, basically. Yeah, definitely. But it just sounds like he was out making too many investments. Maybe he should have held back a little bit on that. That might have been the case. And I don't know what else was going on with the paper, but I just found it really interesting that he was having these issues with that stuff. And yet he had all these other investments going on. Right. And that despite having all this other business that he was doing, the paper, that was where his heart and soul was at. And he wasn't going to give that up for anything. Clearly, he was very passionate about it. These investments gave him enough wealth to build his dream home up in the West Hills in a spot overlooking the city on 46 acres. Construction on the Piddock Mansion began in 1909. Architect Edward T. Folks designed the mansion that would have 22 rooms and cover 16,000 square feet. Holy cow. How would you like to have to vacuum that place? I was just thinking, I hope Georgiana didn't have to do it all. (laughs) That's why they had those kids, you know. The style is French Renaissance and took until 1914 to be completed. That's a long time to get that construction done. An elevator was added late in the design after Georgiana had a stroke in 1913. So during the construction, she has a stroke and she's not going to be able to get around the house on the stairs. And so last minute, they're like, can we somehow get this elevator in there? The exterior is covered in Washington sandstone. The house is both architecturally amazing and had the upgraded technology of the day. All the bells and whistles. The interior had many unique trappings and a mix of styles from the French Renaissance, Edwardian, Jacobian, and Turkish. There were the marble floors and oak panel cabinets that one would find in many elegant mansions of the time. But there was also foil lining the inside of the entryway ceiling. Georgiana was very frugal, especially when she and Henry were first starting their lives. And she had saved foil from old tea containers. Now, Kelly, (laughs) I consider you to be a frugal woman. (laughs) I am. If you start taking the foil from my gum wrappers and putting it on the ceiling, we're going to have some issues. Now, I told you. But I, it would only be art. I, I told art. you. <laughs> I wanted some of those tin type ceiling tiles. It's faux finished tin. Don't get any ideas here. <laughs> you need to chew more gum, babe. When I, when <laughs> It'd be I was, a long time before that could happen. <laughs> I do chew a lot of gum, though. It might happen. I just found that fascinating when I was researching this and I'm like foil lining the inside of the entryway ceiling and I saw your face crinkling as you're reading it going, what the hell? Pretty much. (laughs) And then you're like, wait a minute, she saved foil from these old tea containers? She must have liked the look of it, I guess. I would imagine so. And if you think back then, I mean, I don't know what color it was, but I'm envisioning gold. If anybody's been inside the Piddock Mansion, I would love to know, is it gold foil that's in that front area? Is it silver? I don't know what the tea containers would have had. That's what I'm thinking it might have looked like, is that gold leafing. And, you know, some of the houses we've been in, they painted over that without realizing that's gold leaf stuff. The formal living room was designed with a curving outside wall of windows, which provided great views of the Cascade Mountain Range and Mount Hood. Grand staircase branches off to the right and left after hitting the center landing and is absolutely gorgeous. Made from marble with a wood handrail and wrought iron balusters. This goes up three floors. There are 23 rooms including five large bedrooms, a sewing room, a music room, library, Turkish smoking room, and a couple of sleeping porches. 
The house was also equipped with a dumbwaiter and modern luxuries like intercoms, indirect lighting, and a central vacuum system, and a walk-in refrigerator. For the time, good grief. Yeah, a walk-in refrigerator. I'm trying to think, are there any Victorian homes that we've been in that have had that? I think the only home that I've been in that I've seen a walk-in refrigerator is the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina, so far. Well, maybe one day we'll get to this location. <laughs> yes, and I do want and you, you to get number to two. <laughs> I do want you to get to the Biltmore too. There is a Steinway piano that Henry bought for his daughter here too. Fireplace mantles are carved wood, and the ceilings feature shaped embellishments with several unique chandeliers. There's an interesting shower in one of the rooms that is circular shaped and has semicircular steel pipes circling the interior edge. When we're describing these homes to people, Kelly, sometimes it's really hard when you've seen pictures and stuff to say how that would look to people. Right, because some of the times the pictures are really odd looking. Yeah, like this shower, I've never seen anything like it. So imagine that you've walked into something that is shaped like a silo. So it's that circular shape there. Most of it that you're walking into, it's got the tiles all around it. And then there's just this opening on that end. So there's no glass door. There's no door because it's curved. It wouldn't have worked or whatever. And then there's these metal bars that are going around it. It has this metal pipe that's going up the back of it and comes out into the shower head. But then you have these other metal pipes coming off of that central pipe that's going up that just kind of circle around it. And I don't know if they're... Is it for a curtain? It's it, they're in, around the middle. So I don't oh. know if it's like a handrail, but then there's like three of them. So it's like, I don't know why you need three like, of them. It's almost like a slip for a hoop skirt back in the day. Yes. It's like the smaller, the all the different sizes of... Yeah, and I I have no idea what the purpose is, because if it was supposed to be something that was decorative or whatever, it doesn't look very good. I I wouldn't want that in mind. I'm surprised you didn't go down a rabbit hole with that. Well, now maybe I might. (laughs) (laughs) I I need to know about designs of showers. The new coffee table book by Diane Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy Franco's taking care of the fireplace mantle book, so now I'm going to take care of the showers in Victorian homes book. (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be a hot seller. You're going to have these people come into your home and sit down on your couch and see this coffee table book. Showers of the Victorian era. <laughs> Back on topic. You know, what? I, you know what? I bet if we Googled <laughs> it, we would actually find that there is a book already. Possibly. There's a circular bathroom, too. And I don't know if it's the same bathroom that the shower's in, but it has porcelain items like the sink and bathtub. And that bathtub is rather small based on the picture we saw, wasn't it? It was kind of square. Yeah. It was really small and just... Uh, a square, maybe it was slightly rectangular. It was kind of hard to tell from the angle of the picture, but definitely not a normal elongated tub. No, and it was right <laughs> on the floor. To me, it yes. almost looked like it'd be something you'd walk over and stand in and wash well, your feet and I off I almost in. thought that it was like a shower of sorts. There would be a head up above. You, mm-hmm. would, you would expect to see a head up above and maybe a curtain that goes around it and you just stand right there in that spot and shower. Yeah, it was but, very odd. But it was not set up that way at all. So I'm like, what did people sit in this and then just pull your legs up to you and up to your chin yeah i, I don't know it was just weird like this is not a very Hang comfortable over the side comfortable looking bathtub. Yeah, i don't know it definitely wasn't a soaking tub by any means no, no unless you're just soaking your back end i don't know in another picture there is a dome-shaped ceiling with gold accents and really neat designs with olive and red paint i can't describe it to you but i will get a picture and put it up on instagram Georgiana loved her roses, and so, of course, she planted many on the grounds. The mansion has formal gardens all around it. The Gate Lodge is an Italian-styled craftsman home built from concrete that sits next to what had been the original gated roadway leading to the mansion. 
This was the servants' quarters. Most of the time, the chauffeur lived here with his family. This house was restored and decorated as it was in the 1930s and 1940s. Georgiana died in 1918, and Henry followed her a year later after catching the flu. He asked to be brought to a window in the mansion so that he could see his beloved Portland one last time. The mansion went into probate, and his estate would be valued at $116 million in today's dollars. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is a lot, especially considering how he was kind of moving his money around and borrowing money to try to pay for things. I know. And so I'm like, how much was the paper worth that he was having to get so much help with it? The paper went into a trust for 20 years and then was divided among his heirs, with two Pittock family members and one Scott family member overseeing everything. And as was the case with all newspapers, it eventually was sold to a bunch of newspaper chains over the years. The mansion stayed in the hands of the Pittock family and the Pittock grandson lived in the mansion until 1958. He tried to sell, but there were no takers, and the house was heavily damaged in the Columbus Day storm in 1962. The grand home was left abandoned after that. Right before it was going to be demolished in 1964, the city of Portland bought it with help from residents who raised $75,000. And after extensive renovations, it was reopened as a museum that you can visit today. I always think it's cool when the people all get together to save a house like that. Absolutely. In 2007, the Pittock Mansion Society took over operations. The house has appeared in several movies. The 1977 film First Love, starring William Catt and Susan Day. The 1982 slasher movie Unhinged. The 1989 horror movie The Haunting of Sarah Hardy, starring Morgan Fairchild and Celia Ward. And the 1993 film Body of Evidence. When one visits the museum, they can see items from the family and they might even experience their ghosts. opened to visitors in 1965 and that is when reports about weird activity started. Both of the Pittocks and their groundskeeper died in the home. Some of the paranormal reports have included seeing windows shutting and latching on their own. There's also the sound of disembodied footsteps in the hallways. That seems to be the most prominent thing. Almost every haunting has that. Definitely. One of the really weird claims is that a portrait of Henry Pittock moves on its own around the house, but maybe not so weird considering that boots have been seen walking around without anybody being in them. <laughs> so it's like, which one is weirder? A picture moving I, on its own or boots moving on their own? Personally, I think it would actually be the picture showing up in different locations. That would be stranger to me because that's a physical object that mm -hmm. has to be picked up and moved someplace else versus seeing like residual boots i mean are they i don't know though do that's they a look good like question. flesh and blood boots like actual boots i don't <laughs> know because the reports weren't specific so huh. that's a good question if it was flesh and blood boots that are moving around well, that certainly would be more odd <laughs> yeah so now i am thinking that maybe they're more ghostly looking boots and you're just not seeing the rest of the operation yeah, because that's something that's not uncommon no we hear about that a lot whether it's the upper body a soldier area, yeah. walking across or just the legs yeah. or something of that nature. Both guests and guides have seen apparitions in the house. Georgiana loved roses, of course, so the scent of roses is often smelled throughout the home. This usually occurs on the upper floors. Georgiana's apparition is seen in the garden, as is the spirit of the former groundskeeper, and I don't know what exactly he died from, but apparently he wants to still do his job. 
One consistency in all the reports is that the ghosts are not malicious and they love the home. That is one of the reasons why people believe that it's family members that are haunting the mansion. We've heard stories from staff at many haunted locations having the same kind of experience when locking up whatever location it is that they work at. You all know the drill at this point. They turn off all the lights, lock the door, and head for their car. They get in the car and look up only to see that every light in the location is blazing. This happens at the Piduck to staff. One woman heard a picture fall off of a wall when she was touring the house. She went to investigate and saw that a picture had indeed fallen off the wall. She watched as a woman wearing a long gown picked up the picture. The guest must have looked odd staring into this room because the guide came up behind her and asked if there was something the matter. She turned to the guide and said she was fine and just watching a woman pick up a picture that had fallen. The guide looked confused and when the guest turned back around, she saw that there was no woman in a dress in the room. The other thing that I didn't get with that report is what happened to the picture? Was the picture still on the floor? Had the picture not fallen and it was on the wall? I don't know, but interesting stories. To be sure. Henry and Georgiana Piddock didn't get to enjoy their beautiful home for long. As you heard, they both were dead within four or five years of moving in. Can't imagine you've got all this wealth. You finally build your dream home and you only get to enjoy it for five years. Yeah, that's sad. Now they spent 50 years in their other home, which I would assume, (laughs) yeah, was pretty, at least relatively big if they had six children grow to adulthood in it. But I'm sure it wasn't anything compared to this one. So is that why their spirits might still be hanging around in the afterlife so they could actually enjoy the house now? Seems like it would be. I would imagine they'd be like, why are all these people walking through our (laughs) home every day? Perhaps. Is Piddock Mansion haunted? That That is for for you to to decide. decide. Well, just another reason for us to head up to the Northwest. Check out Portland. I hear it's a pretty nice city. It's beautiful. The whole state of Oregon is beautiful. I love it. My grandmother had lived in Eugene for quite a while. Okay. Never never got there to see her. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. They moved up from California to there. I'm not Ah. exactly sure why, but we want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Just wanted to share this message that we got from Cheryl. Good morning, Diane and Kelly. I'm so enjoying getting caught up on the regular podcast episodes. The Velisca House episode is so interesting. I'm so impressed with Kelly and her conversation with the Stillinger children in the room by herself. She sounded genuinely interested in what the girls had to say. Well, I was. (laughs) I just felt like we were sitting there chatting. I just had answered her too. I said, we feel that our way of investigating gets better results because we just treat them like they're regular people. We try not to be disruptive to their home environment or wherever we're at. Absolutely. You genuinely, I think it really is because you kind of have that mothering spirit that you Kind of came at them like a mother and asking them <laughs> questions that way. I definitely like to mother people, I guess you could say. We got a comment over at the website from Diantha. She wrote, I listened to your episode today about Victor, Colorado. I'm from Colorado Springs and also live here in Florida. It's been 10 years since I've been home and your episode brought back so many memories as I have visited Cripple Creek and Victor so many times in my life that I can't even count. I miss my home state and want to thank you for the trip down memory lane. Well, you are very welcome. And look at that. Another former Coloradan here in Florida. And then Matt had shared this experience. This is my personal paranormal experience. I've had more than a handful, but this one will stick with me forever. Everything in here is 100% true to my recollection. It was 2006 or early 2007. I was living in North Carolina with my girlfriend, now ex-wife, at her parents' house. 
The layout of the house is small, one front door and one back door. The back door was in the kitchen. Our room was connected to the kitchen so I could see the back door from our bed. Our room was also connected to the bathroom. We always left the bathroom light on with the door pulled shut because her father regularly woke up in the middle of the night to use it. You'll realize why all of this detail is relevant later. I was working construction and we were expecting our first child. I would normally get up and ready for work around 4.30 a.m. and arrive at work around 5.30 a.m. One morning as I'm pulling into work, she calls me. She's frantic and screaming, someone just broke into the effing house. I asked her if he was still in the house and she said no. I asked to talk to her father and he said that he had already called the police. The police came and searched in and around the house with no luck and also no evidence of a break-in. Fast forward to two weeks later. I was dead asleep when my girlfriend wakes me up around 3.30 a.m. whispering, wake up, someone's at the back door. It's important to note that we had a few small dogs in the backyard who would occasionally paw at the screen door when they wanted back inside. So I can hear the screen door moving back and forth. I say, babe, it's the dogs. Go back to sleep. She insists that it isn't so. Annoyed at this point, I sit up and listen. And that's when I see it. The door opens and the silhouette of a huge man steps through the back door. I put my hand over her mouth and cover her completely and cover myself except for my eyes. I had no means of self-defense within reach and it was the smartest thing I could think of at the time. The man walks a straight line from the back door to the front of our bed. He stands there just staring at us for about two minutes but it felt like forever. I couldn't make out any of his features as the moonlight coming from the kitchen was behind him. Then he turns his head and looks towards the bathroom door. He walks over, cracks the door enough to get his hand through, and then turns off the light. At this point, I was sure we were about to be murdered. But then, this is where things got really strange. He opens the door, walks into the dark bathroom, and then shuts the door. I lay there confused for a second. I know there's a baseball bat on the other side of the room in the corner. I get up and tiptoe sprint to grab the bat. I make my way to the bathroom, and by this point, I have fully mentally prepared myself to do one of two things die or murder this intruder in the bathroom. I creak the door open thinking it will startle him and I'll get an idea of what side of the room he's on. I hear nothing. So I just say screw it and run in, fling open the shower curtain and he's not there. I'm panicking because I know he's behind me. I quickly turn around only to realize that he isn't behind me either. I feel like I'm doing circles in the bathroom looking for this guy. I know he didn't exit the bathroom through the door because my eyes were deadlocked on it and the only window in the bathroom was nailed completely shut and impossible to open. I'm freaking out as I leave the bathroom and my girlfriend asks, where did he go? Confused, I just say, I I don't know. I walk to the front door and it's still locked from the inside. He never left the house, but he wasn't still in the house either. My now ex-wife and I disagree on almost every subject, but one thing we will always agree on is that we have no idea who or what entered the house that night. Thank you for reading. I hold this experience close to my heart because it was so intense and so surreal, and it's one I'll never forget. Wow, that was something else. We want to thank you all for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Jessica Garcia for your one-time donation. She really was feeling the pain for Mort not having anything to do. I think she was worried. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we don't want him to have idle hands. Definitely not. That was a little bit disturbing. And then the rest of the people who jumped in to help out too. Melissa Potter, welcome back to you. We're going to put you up on the niche wall. Ariel Facey raised her contribution. She will now be moved to a chest tomb. And we want to welcome into the cemetery... Teresa Marie, we will be putting her under a marble tombstone. And Tammy Gerard, we're going to bury you in a garden tomb. 
Thanks, everybody, for signing up. We definitely appreciate it, and it really goes far to help us produce the podcast. All right, Mort, you have some work to do. A work and no play makes Mort a dull boy. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Spectacular people, welcome to this 200. That one was yours. You better use that one now, too. I will. How the hell do I come up with 200 when I'm in 329 here? We're tired? I guess. Take 556. Do you notice that when you're sloppy s's yeah, what does I that mean say it's out of the side of my mouth instead of the front of my teeth maybe you have uh what is that tongue for slytherin when you can talk to <laughs> snakes parcel tongue it's parcel tongue so you're just like <laughs> no it's got a tip see it's not split that doesn't parcel mean that you're not a snake parcel tongue is the two little whoop-de-doo things harry potter didn't have two little <laughs> tongues hanging i don't out know his mouth. that's what i thought it meant maybe i'm wrong okay <laughs> Back to the show. And now, back to the show. The Depression of 1893 nearly bankrupted him. Bankrupted. You better not use that. I will kill you. <laughs> In your sleep. <laughs> the Depression of 1893 nearly bankrupted him. Can I use that? Or are you going to kill me in my sleep if I use that one too? It's hot in here. Fireplace mantles are carved wood, and the ceilings feature shaped embellishments with several unique Chandler. Like Chandler, like Bing? Chandler Bing? I mean, what are we going to friends now? <laughs> Do they have friends hanging off the ceilings here? Uh, I'm fried from driving all over Florida today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with several unique chandeliers. In another picture, there's a dorm. In another picture, there's... Dome-shaped ceiling. <laughs> okay, now you're getting some fodder for your blooper. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of bloopers on this one. What is the problem? Is because we were hanging out all day yesterday with a bunch of circus stuff? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the Gate Lodge is an Italianate-styled craftsman house. <laughs> Bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs>